Hello and welcome to Nevermind the Bar Charts with myself, Mark Pack. For this show, I'm joined once again by Duncan Brack after the popularity of our show a few weeks back looking at the lessons for the Liberal Democrats from Joe Grimman's time as party leader. I've invited Duncan back to talk about another former leader. This time we're going to be talking about David Steele. So welcome back, Duncan. Thank you very much. Good to be here again. Let's quickly recap the outlines of David Steele's career to kick us off. He was elected as an MP in a by-election in 1965, still in his 20s. He became party leader in 1976 following the departure of Jeremy Thorpe mired in scandal. And then shortly afterwards followed the Lib Lab Pact when the Liberals kept Labour in office during a hung parliament in the late 1970s. Then there was the formation of the SDP and the SDP Liberal Alliance in the 1980s with Steele's famous speech telling colleagues to go back to your constituencies and prepare for government. Government didn't follow, however, and after two failed attempts by the Alliance to break through at general elections, the Liberals and SDP merged with Steele deciding not to run as leader of the merged party, which became the Liberal Democrats. And in fact, our first leader was therefore uh, Paddy Ashdown. Now, Steele's political career didn't end there. And he had, for example, time as the first presiding officer of the Scottish Parliament when it was created in the 1990s. But for this show, we're going to concentrate on his time as party leader, and in particular, what lessons we can draw in terms of political strategy for the Liberal Democrats in the current and future decades. Um, So to kick off, Duncan, I mean, relations with other parties really dominated David Steele's time as leader. You know, the choice to go into the Lib Lab Pact, the decision to encourage others to form the SDP rather than trying to get them to join the Liberals directly, and then making an electoral pact with that new party that formed the SDP. So what, what do you see as Steele's overall strategy running through those different events? Yes, I think that's absolutely right. And I think it's right that we um, look at David Steele again. I think for many members of the party, probably don't know very much about him, but he was um, really quite a critical leader at an important stage in the party's development. Um, And I think the party changed, uh, certainly in the public mind, quite dramatically from the beginning of his leadership to the end. And he was, let's remember, the longest serving liberal leader since Asquith, who was in post for 12 years, which none of his successors have managed uh, so far. Um, So quite striking, actually, isn't it? Because 12 years is not doesn't instinctively strike me as a very large number. That's quite quite i'm not sure what that says about what happened leaders of our party well they seem to be changing every year at the moment which is um uh, hopefully the next one will stay a bit longer than recent ones (laughs) but i think i mean you have to remember leadership is a really taxing thing to do uh and in fact Steele almost stood down uh in fact he did resign in 1983 and then withdrew his resignation letter like the next day um he was exhausted after the 1983 election um, he'd been leader then for seven years. Um, he has also, of course, he always sat for a Scottish border seat, which was really widespread. I actually worked for Archie Kirkwood, who was his next door neighbour for uh, three years, for two years rather. Um, so I got to know the area quite well. <clears throat> it's a, it's a really, it's a beautiful part of the country. It's very widespread. No major centres of population. Um, it's very widespread. Mm. So uh, you know, lots of little towns and villages. You have to spend a lot of time going around the constituency. Add on to that the um, the chores of being leader, it, it it takes it out of you. And I think all our leaders get worn down in the end. The the next longest after Steele was 
was Paddy, who was leader for 11 years, wasn't he? Mm. Um, so, um, <clears throat> you know, it's just, it's one of those things. It's a really taxing job to do. But I think coming back to your original question, um, yes, I think uh, working with other parties was a consistent theme of Steel in the same way that it had been for Grimmond in very different circumstances, um, and the same way it was to be for Ashdown. And it is a rational response to the position third parties, small third parties or fourth parties, find themselves in an electoral system that's dominated unfairly because of the electoral system by the two major parties. You know, it's and very unlikely. Some, something to add to that as well is that with both Grimmond and Steele, they hadn't yet seen the events of things like the 1980s where there was a occasions where the third party could re- maybe not realistically but at least dream of breaking through and replacing one of the other main parties you know there are times in the 1980s when that seemed like that might be possible there were times when lib dems got ludicrously overexcited about that in the 1990s it was only last year that the Lib Dems outpolled both Labour and the Tories in a national election, albeit European power election. So I think one of the things we need to remember about Steele and Grimmond is that however implausible we might think some of those dreams subsequently were, at their time it really did seem like the idea of the Liberals returning to being the second or the first party was way, way off and therefore they needed some other plan for what you do other than just toddle along and look after your own constituency. Yes, I think that's right. <clears throat> and the, the Liberals, after all, scored... Um, I mean, the two-party system was beginning to break down in the 60s and 70s. Mm-hmm. And you can see that in the revival of the Liberal Party. And Jeremy Thorpe Steele's predecessor mm-hmm. took the party to 19% and 18% in the two elections in 1974. But that faded very quickly. And people saw the Liberal vote pretty much then as a protest vote. And indeed, it was a protest vote. There was very little... Um, coherence to it in terms of voting the, the characteristics of people who voted for it we actually have a much more coherent vote now even at even at our current low levels of support um and Steele helped to change that i think and began to build more of an image of a kind of responsible party something you could vote for and possibly expect to see win but he approached that through trying to work with other parties mm. um, i think as well as the things you mentioned the european referendum the first eu referendum in 1975 was very important before Steele was leader but he was chief whip at the time uh, i think or foreign affairs spokesman but he played an important part mm. in the cross-party campaign to uh, retain britain's membership of the of the eu mm. Uh, and built good relations with other people in the campaign, like Roy Jenkins, like the Labour moderates, the pro-EU uh, Labour moderates at the time. And that was an important uh, uh, important episode, I think. And then um, just less than a year into his leadership, the Labour government of Jim Callaghan, who replaced Harold Wilson, lost its majority through, it had a wafer-thin majority anyway in October 74, lost through by-elections and defections. And the new Conservative leader, Margaret Thatcher, um, put down the vote of no confidence. And the government was going to lose. If anyone's seen James Graham's play, uh, This House, mm. they will understand the febrile nature of parliamentary politics there. If you haven't seen that, I recommend it totally. It's a, it's a brilliant play. Just about how you survive as a government with no overall majority and, and the, the desperate things the whips had to do to keep the government on the road. Um, the Callaghan did a deal with Steele to form the Lib Lab Pact, and uh, the government survived the vote of no confidence, and basically it could then rely on pretty much a majority in most votes for the next 18 months until the pact expired. And, you know, 
we you can argue about what the pact achieved in terms of liberal uh, outcomes for liberal policy and generally the conclusion is not very much but i think for Steele that wasn't the important thing he wanted to demonstrate that liberals could play a part in the governance of the country even if from the kind of the background supporting the government they were important they mattered to the major political parties in which way in in a way in which they hadn't done before since the 1920s really um, and it demonstrated that liberals were not just a kind of party of protest, something on the fringes. They were an important part uh, of uh, government and politics. And that changed, I think, began to change the image of the Liberal Party in uh, people's minds. And a, a somewhat, I guess, unkind, but with a degree of truth way of describing, I think, the Liberal Pact is that Steele prioritised the idea of Liberal MPs being photographed walking into Downing Street and didn't really prioritise what on earth then happened once they were in Downing Street. So the Liberal Pact resulted in Lib Liberal MPs voting to keep Labour in power, but there were no, not only were there no ministerial posts or anything like that in return, there was very, very little in the way of policies that the the, gov the Labour government therefore delivered. It wasn't like the Liberals had a wish list of policy. So even in things like David Steele's own memoirs, uh, it, there, there's some stuff about profit-related pay. It's a pretty, you know, for propping up a government, it's a pretty thin list of policy concessions and perhaps best epitomised by the policy concession on electoral reform was to have a free vote on PR for the European Parliament elections. And of course, if you have a free vote, well, Labour and Tory MPs roll out and vote against PR. And so you had a free vote and then PR didn't happen. That, that the policy gains were really, really meagre, weren't they? Yes, that's correct. There are a few items in budgets uh, like uh, you know, encouragement for employee share ownership, um, worker participation, a bit of stuff around um, rural constituencies. Uh, the Liberal Party blocked some of the more uh, kind of left-wing nationalisation initiatives of the Labour government, but it didn't really make a lot of difference. Um, and Steele was criticised at the time for that. John Pardo, who was his uh, leadership contender the year before, mm. um, commented that, that David was far more interested in just reaching agreement than what the agreement contained. Um, but as I said, I don't think that mattered too much to Steele. It was the image of the party exercising influence over government that mattered. And he could point, reasonably enough actually, to the way in which they gave the government a stable majority in which it hadn't before. And there's a lot of talk at the time, and people wouldn't remember this, I was just getting interested in politics myself at the time, but there was considerable talk about Britain becoming ungovernable. The uh, economy seemed to be in a real mess. Uh, we'd had to apply for this massive loan from the IMF, which developed countries normally don't do. Um, inflation was very large, unemployment was high, the trade Union seemed to have too much control over the reins of the economy. And you know, people were publishing books about, you know, is Britain, British democracy finished, basically. And that was a constant theme of the kind of early and mid-70s. Um, and the government seemed to be, uh, you know, with, with no majority at all, or a very small majority, seemed to be unable to carry through its programme. And the Lib Lab Pact brought an end to that, and it did give stable government for 18 months. Inflation began to fall. Uh, the economy seemed to begin to recover then. Now, whether it would have happened anyway without the pact is not clear. Um, but I think there's a reasonable argument to say that the pact did result in government stability. But I said, again, that wasn't, you know, for Steele, that was secondary. It was the image of the government, uh, image of the Liberals supporting the government and being a major player in, gov in government that mattered. Yeah, and I think the, I mean, 
as you say, very hard to know what the what if, exactly how the what if would have played out had the Lib Lab pact not been agreed. Um, although I think things like the nationalisation that you mentioned the Lib Lab pact stopping, I mean, if there had been no Lib Lab pact, Liberal MPs would have not voted, I think, for that nationalisation anyway. So it's not as if that that would have been able to get through Parliament. But I, I'm struck by a, a little bit of a parallel with 2010 in a way, where although the Lib Dem negotiating team in 2010 definitely had a long list of specific policy demands, and quite a lot of those were you know, successfully achieved in the negotiations, um, although, interestingly, again, PR result, you know, the PR promise <laughs> was one that then didn't actually result in PR being introduced. Um, the but in 2010, again, there was that sense of actually stability is really important. We need to just provide stability. Um, and I do wonder whether both in the Liberals and then the Liberal Democrats, we give, as it were, too much credence to that in terms of almost thinking a little bit like civil servants as opposed to, you know, politicians where, I mean, stability is nice, but it's not the desired end state. You know, a liberal society... I. I don't think is one that, where you would say there is long-term stable government necessarily. Indeed, there seems something slightly illiberal about having sort of long-term stability in some way. So, but 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 as you say, I think it, the, against the backdrop of the 1970s, that was that was a, an extended version of the pre-2010 financial crash, wasn't it? It gave a real there was a real sense of just is democracy possible? Can democracy still function in Britain? Yes, that's right. As I said there was real fear um, of just just the system of government not working uh, and the economy just descending into into chaos. In the same way, I guess we began to see. I mean, the Greek debt crisis um, exploded the day after the twenty ten election, I think, and that really influenced the behaviour of the Lib Dem negotiators in coalition. And I think probably led them to uh, give in to conservative demands on the economy, which, in retrospect, I think was one of the biggest mistakes that the coalition made. But actually, uh, the broad the point is, I think the coalition negotiators, the, the Lib Dems, learned from the pact that actually coalition was better than, or in theory, coalition would be better than a confidence and supply arrangement, which is basically what the Lib Lab pact yeah. was, in that you had, uh, unlike the pact, you actually had ministers in place able to do things and to again, in theory, um, get uh, credit for them, which you didn't have in the pact. I mean, there was no direct influence on government policy. It was all behind the scenes. Uh, but and, I think and the, what happened electorally but in the opinion polls and then in the election in 79 was that it being a much looser arrangement in terms of Liberal pact rather than the coalition, that didn't seem to really help the Liberals, did it? It's not like people thought, well, you know, you're not really part of the government. You're not really propping them up because you, you, know, you weren't ministers. It, it was very much... Uh, you know, the party suffered in a way similar to how the Lib Dems suffered in 2015, with the key exception that just before the 1979 general election, David Alton pulled off a stunning parliamentary by-election victory uh, up in Liverpool, which, which in many ways revived the Liberal Party's fortunes just in time for general election polling day. 79, the 79 election result could easily have been far, far worse than it was. Well, I think uh, a couple of things happened there. I think, first of all, the pact, unlike the coalition, the pact ended six months before mm. polling day, um, actually more than six months in autumn 78. Uh, the, 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 yeah, the Labour government's failure to support PR for the European elections was mm. a critical moment. And actually from then, that vote in December 77, the rest of the pact was, was always a struggle. It wasn't the kind of optimistic uh, nature of the first nine months or so. Um, 
And Although again, there was the the lesson that the Lib Dems drew in 2010 to 15 was coming out of the Lib Lab Pact six months before a general election didn't help in 79. Hence, coming out of the coalition a bit before the 2015 election wouldn't be worthwhile either. Yeah, it's difficult. I mean, as you say, Lib Dems were more associated with coalition in 2010-2015 than the Liberals were with the government in 77-78. Um, and the, it's certainly the, the party lost support during the pact uh, in pretty much the same way the Lib Dems did in coalition. In fact, the, the fall was steeper. Um, the party lost three quarters of the county council seats it was defending in 77. It came regularly fourth in by-elections behind the National Front or Scottish or Welsh Nationalists. Uh, I think the Glee Club song, Losing Deposits, um, stems from that era, mm. actually, because then, of course, the deposit level was 12.5%. So um, yeah. we, we lost deposits in a whole string of by-elections. Um, and uh, that that stopped pretty much in 78 when the party lo- uh, departed the pact mm. um, and pretty much stabilised around about, I think, the 10% level. You're absolutely right. The Itchill by-election just on the day after the government fell, ironically. Um, so immediately, the winner, David Alton, would have to face another uh, election campaign. Um, that was a major um, uh, boost to the party's uh, morale, quite apart from anything else, and also its, its you know, public image. But also, I think we need to remember, and we're, you know, we're discussing David Steele, after all, Steele fought a very, very good campaign in 1979. Uh, and I think the, if you look at the, the opinion polls, we managed to add five or six percent mm. to the poll during the campaign. And that is quite a substantial achievement. I'm raising it from mm. below 10 percent up to the end. I think it was about 14 percent. And that saved most of the Liberal MPs. There was one projection at the beginning of the campaign that Liberals would be down to just two seats um, by the end. And in fact, in the end, they saved 11 out of the 14 that had yeah. gone into the election. And uh, the Liberal manifesto was was very well regarded. The Guardian awarded it, I think, 42 points for new ideas compared to 11 and 9 for the other two main parties. Um, and Steele's final party election broadcast was rated as one of the best of, uh, of, the, of the, certainly of the campaign, in fact, of, of many campaigns by observers. Um, Politics seemed to be getting increasingly polarised then. Mm. You know, you had Thatcher taking the Conservatives to the right. You had trade unions and the whole sort of economic chaos and the, and the socialist pressure on the left. Callan himself wasn't particularly uh, radical. There was obviously forces in the Labour Party driving the party to the left. And Steele was trying to appeal then to the kind of the moderate centre, people who, you know, didn't, who worried about this polarisation of politics. And actually, he was quite effective in doing so. And that was to become the theme, of course, of the alliance, very much their image. But Steele played that card in 79. And I think you know, he himself said of the three general elections he fought, 79 was the one which he thought he did the best. And I think it made the most difference to the party's fortunes. And he had the advantage of being the third party leader. So, for example, uh, the Granada 500 series of TV debates, which Granada TV pioneered over several elections in the 1970s, where they would focus in on a group of voters in a particular constituency and do things such as have each of the party leaders face questioning from a panel of those voters. Because, uh, of course, back then, all uh, TV debates had not yet become an acceptable <laughs> format. And therefore, it was, you know, one, one leaders would appear one after the other in sequence. But looking at the, the polling that was done around the Granada 500 appearances of uh, Steele and Margaret Thatcher and Jim Callaghan, Steele came out pretty well from those. You know, he came out p- 
popular across the political spectrum, more so on the centre left than on the the sort of the centre right. So again, that sort of sense of the Liberals being maybe a little bit more uh, closer to Labour than the Tories was there. But also, crucially, it was he was one of the three leaders. You know, it wasn't the Granada Five Hundred had a show. Uh, where there was Mrs. Thatcher and then there was Jim Callaghan and then there were seven others of whom David Steele was one, that he had that big advantage. I do wonder, though, whether part of the legacy of the Lib Lab Pact is that it gave the party a set of lessons that we thought we were applying in 2010, but the lessons were fundamentally the wrong ones, in that the problem with both the Lib Lab Pact and with the 2010 to 15 coalition in a way, was the message the party had used in the preceding general election. So if you look at the Lib Dem messaging in the 2010 election or the Liberal Party messaging in the two 1974 elections, they were both versions of a plague on all your houses. And how do you go from a general election campaign in which you say a plague on everyone to, okay, we're going to cosy up to one of you? Whatever form that might be in, Libla Pact, a more formal confidence and supply arrangement, a coalition, perhaps the real lesson is that if you think you might have a hung parliament, you, you need to be very aware of the downside of going into that with a campaign that is everyone else is awful, we're completely different from them. Yes, I think that's true. I think the circumstances of the pact were rather different. I mean, after all, Steele hadn't been leader in 74. The election mm. had been two and a half years before. Mm. In fact, you know, Callaghan hadn't been a Labour leader either. There'd been quite a big change uh, in the intervening period. And I think there was a reasonable case there that the, the government couldn't carry on as it was. And indeed, you know, if the Liberals hadn't supported the government in the vote in their confidence, if they'd voted with the opposition, with Thatcher, the government would have fallen and we would have had an election in 7th, March 77, April 77, which the Conservatives would have won quite easily. So we'd have had Thatcherism two years earlier than we actually did. Um, so uh, I, I think the, the, the circumstances are a bit different. But I think you're right in the sense that, and experience from other democracies bear this out mm. as well, junior partners in coalitions always have a tough time, pretty much. Uh, they have to be able to show that they've made a real concrete difference. Uh, and I think they didn't, we didn't in the coalition. You know, opinion polls showed that by the end of the coalition, People just didn't have any idea what the Lib Dems had done. It wasn't like they particularly disliked us, um, though there was some of that as well because of tuition fees mainly, but they just saw the government as a conservative government because they couldn't see the Lib Dems had made any difference to it. Um, I think in retrospect, they might be able to you know, see that 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 wasn't a fair judgment, but at the time it was. Um, so I think if we are going to talk about coalition in the future, we have to be seen to we have to make a major difference and be seen to make a major difference and also i think to be honest we ha we shouldn't enter into coalition unless there's a cast iron guaranteed legislation for pr because i think then that changes everything yeah. and of course yeah. we never managed to do that in either the pact or the coalition yeah i mean i guess i would frame it slightly differently which is i think there clearly are differences between say coalition and confidence and supply um, and they're important ones to think about if you know because hung parliaments are likely again in the future but the much bigger factor is what's the message that you've run up to it with so that as, as I you know, absolutely agree with you. You need to be able to say, here is something concrete we've delivered, but also crucially that needs to be something concrete that you delivered that was a part of the reason people had for voting for you in the first place. And I think this is one of the problems with the, the £10,000 income tax allowance in the 2010 to 15 period, isn't it? Is that, I mean, it was a good policy. It helped you know, it helped a whole load of people, particularly who needed help from the government. So it was a good policy in many ways. 
But fundamentally, you vote Lib Dem to get income tax cut. Well, why not vote Tory in that case? You know, that there wasn't, it, 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 not only was it not clearly re- enough related to what the Lib Dem previous messaging had been, it also fundamentally wasn't a reason to have Lib Dems having political power because sure, the Tories would have cut taxes in a different way from from if they had had a one-party majority. But broadly speaking, if you want to cut taxes, why would you not vote, you know, Tory? I, I think, though, the, the other lesson is is that it's not just the two data points that we have. It's not just the Lib Lab Pact and the 2010 to 15 coalition, because there's also the experience of Grimmond in the 64 to 66 parliament. There is the, you know, the much shorter February to October 74 parliament. There's the Lib Lab Pact. There's the coalition. There's a 2017 to 19 parliament. There's a consistent pattern here of when the parliamentary arithmetic throws up the Liberals or then later the Liberal Democrats, as in potentially having sort of kingmaker type votes. It doesn't end happily for the party. There is a much bigger pattern there. The one exception is the weird 92 to 97 parliament, because technically speaking, the Tories did lose their majority uh, partway through that parliament. And of course, the 97 election was a fantastically successful one for the Lib Dems, gaining huge numbers of seats. But that was a really, that was a sort of hung parliament on the basis of maths but not a hung parliament in terms of the politics because the Tories lost their majority in the end because they kicked out a set of Eurosceptic rebels. They withdrew the whip from them and those Eurosceptic rebels were never going to vote for, and at the time, very clearly pro-European Labour Party to be in power. So it was only technically a hung parliament. That's true enough, though. It's worth remembering the possibly one occasion when the Lib Dems did make a difference was in voting with the government, uh, which had then, as you said, lost its majority over the Maastricht Treaty of the mm. European Union. And that was an absolutely right thing to do. It was a distinctive thing. It was said, you know, the Lib Dems care about Europe. We're an internationalist party. It reinforced the party's message rather than, I agree, the income tax cut just did nothing for the party image at all mm. and interest i mean the maastricht treaty vote was pretty controversial at the time i think it would be massively more so if if social media for example had existed then because back in back in that at that time an ordinary party member or even say a local constituency chair you know or a councillor council group leader there was very little way they could express their unhappiness you know you could write a letter to party hq you know there's well, no in, in the way that publicly people can express their unhappiness that's true you enough. can see political momentum build and people and did write a lot of letters i have to say and yeah i was policy director at the time <laughs> party hq yeah, and was. we were responsible my my small department were responsible for handling calls from uh, mm. actually mostly from members of the public and we had just a lot of calls yeah. uh, from party members and from labor party members and you could always tell the labor party members because they were reading from the script and we started correcting them when they got the script wrong eventually we got so familiar with it <laughs> that was a, was that a script that had been organized by labor party hq do you think well, to try i assume so yes them? Yeah. <laughs> how bizarre but i think but one of the reasons it was so controversial was although as you say voting for the maastricht treaty was fully in line with lib dem principles of course it came after a general election in which the lib dems had relatively muted our pro-european message so again there was a a bit of a disconnect between what we had said in the election and then what come a hung parliament, technically a hung parliament, you know, was the was the sort of the crunch vote. Um, although I think strictly speaking, actually, at the time of the Maastricht vote, it wasn't yet a hung parliament, but it was because of the number of Tory rebels on the yep. issue that the Lib Dem votes were crucial to to getting it through. So I, I think there is a, a consistent issue there that, that the real lesson is 
what's the message you're going into previously, not so much the details of what do you what do you agree subsequently. And in that sense, I guess, you know, I guess maybe David Steele would argue that he sort of got it right with the Lib Lab Pact because his focus was on the big picture, as in, I want the Liberals to look like they're an important player once again. Yeah, I think that's right. Actually, I think I'm not entirely sure I agree with you about the the previous platform we thought the election on being important. Because I mean, yeah, let's face it, people don't pay that much attention to liberal manifestos, and certainly not like two years later. I don't think I remember them. But having said that, I mean, the the liberal message in the '74 elections have been to you know create a degree of consensus um, between parties that seem to be drifting further apart, the Labour and Conservative parties, uh, and to restore sort of moderation and stability to government. So I think the Lib Lab Pact could be seen to be in in line with that. I think a bigger message is that we always have to look for distinctive things, things that no other party would say. And Paddy did that, I think, at the Maastricht, but also before that in the previous parliament over the rights of Hong Kong citizens. Mm. And it's interesting that um, it's often international issues that give Mm. us that distinctiveness. And I think that's a consistent theme of Steele's career as well. He wasn't, unlike Grimmins and unlike Ashdown, he wasn't particularly interested in policy. And I think he would recognize actually that was one of his weaknesses. And it, it helped to undermine him in the end. I guess we're going to come on to talk about the, mm. the merger negotiations. Um, but the one area he did care about, I think partly because of his background, he was brought up partly in Kenya and he saw you know, racism and mm. the evils of colonialism and apartheid. Uh, and these were all very big issues uh, in the 60s and 70s, 50s and 60s and 70s, more so than they are now, I think, or they are in different ways now. Mm. Um, and that was always something that really motivated him. One, uh, you know, he opposed, for example, the South African rugby tour, rugby team tour in Britain in 1970, which was really dangerous in uh, his own constituency, which is full of rugby teams and a lot of rugby loving constituents. And he received a lot of flack for it at the time and almost lost his seat in 1970. But he stood up for that. And consistently throughout his career, he was always interested in foreign affairs and making the liberal tolerant, anti-racist, anti-apartheid message. Yeah, and I, I think that touches on a broader question about what overall was the biggest political impact of his career, but we'll save that for a little bit later. Let's get the 1980s out of the way first. So we've talked a lot about the Lib Lab Pact. Um, what then happened was, obviously, the Tories won the 1979 general election, The Labour Party began to splinter. The SDP was formed predominantly by parliamentarians leaving the Labour Party. There was a little bit of splintering from the Tories. Quite a lot of members brought into the SDP who had not been involved in politics at all. But it was essentially a breakaway from the the Labour Party. And rather than trying and encourage people to join the Liberals directly, actually Steele encouraged the creation of an independent separate party didn't he yes that's right i mean rumor has it that that jenkins offered to join the liberal party and Steele dissuaded him i think it's not completely accurate i think what jenkins said if you read Steele's memoirs is that he could join the liberal party but he didn't really feel he'd have much of a role to play then remember he was out of british politics at the time he was uh, president of the european commission um and previous, you know, the party picked up previous Labour defectors. Chris Mayhew, for example, had been a Labour junior minister um, and you know, hadn't really made a lot of uh, impact when he joined the party in the 70s, uh, mid-70s. Um, 
So I think there was a feeling that the Liberal Party was quite good at appealing to disaffected Tory voters, but had never been very good at appealing to disaffected Labour voters. And with a, quite rationally, I think, um, with a split off from the Labour Party, a new party led by Jenkins and others could appeal to Labour voters that the um, Liberals had been unable to reach. I think in, in retrospect, that was probably wrong, but it seemed an entirely rational uh, view at the time. And certainly the SDP's political appeal very quickly ended up being really very similar to the Liberals in terms of being better at appealing to. Now, obviously, in part, that may have been because there was a Tory government. So maybe it was just a natural facet of any new opposition party is that you can do better at appealing to people who are unhappy with the government. As That's true, though, of course... You have to remember what was happening to the Labour Party at the time under Michael Foote, who was an even more calamitously incompetent leader than Jeremy Corbyn, though I think rather more attractive personality. Um, he managed to uh, drive the Labour vote down to 28% in the 1983 election, which is which is kind of a historic low for them, worse than Corbyn even. Um, and the alliance almost caught them on just under 26%. I mean, again, something to steal's credit. The that no Liberal Party or Liberal Democrat uh, election result has ever been as good as that since mm. the 1920s. Um, but because of the um, first-past-the-post system, of course, Labour got over 200 seats and we got 23 in 1983. And the problem then was that the alliance vote, a lot of people unhappy with, with uh, Thatcher's approach to uh, conservatism, uh, so kind of soft Tories, but also a lot of Labour voters who were basically Labour voters but really didn't like foot, um, either switched to the alliance or switched over to the Tories. So it's all similar to 2019 in that sense, though in 2019 we weren't able to um, play the attractive role of the alliance. So, uh, But the problem then also was that the alliance vote was very kind of incoherent uh, electorally. It's very spread very evenly across the across the country. So we had loads of distant second places or strong third places, uh, but very few places where it was um, where it was collected enough. Uh, and I think Steele, it's interesting, again, looking at um, some of the things Steele said, we did an interview with him, which was published in British Liberal Leaders, uh, the History Group's book, um, which is worth reading, I think. And, you know, there was just none of the careful kind of analysis of voting behavior that we have now trying to identify the types of people who might vote liberal democrat you know they're middle class they're pro-europe whatever none of that happened in the 70s and 80s just the party tried to appeal to wherever it could do so as a result we had a massive vote but um not many seats yeah and you know the 1987 election was a sort of rerun of 1983 but less successful <laughs> so well i think the <clears throat> yeah and there's there's interesting because the alliance <clears throat> um i think there are a couple of problems there the alliance had um never really managed to it, it, it was kind of its appeal was a bit amorphous really uh, it never really developed a very exciting distinctive message mm. and indeed that was one of the criticisms that was made at the time was that they wanted a better yesterday mm. uh, and again they were just appealing to the kind of moderate center against the extremes of michael foote's labor then replaced by neil kinnock who made labor more electable in the same way that keir starmer is doing i think after corbyn um and thatcher who was going ever more right wing so i mean that was you know let's not under underplay that that was a powerful message for many people at the time and you know we still got 23 percent of the vote in 1987 um, but it wasn't very exciting. It wasn't very distinctive. Um, it wasn't very innovative. Mm. And you can criticize Steele, I think, for not really being interested enough in policy to drive a kind of coherent policy uh, program through or, or a, a coherent vision of what an yeah. alliance uh, led 
government country would look like. The other problem, of course, was the tensions between the two parties. Mm. And that hadn't, well, it had been a bit of a problem under uh, Roy Jenkins, the STP's first leader, particularly over the division of seats, mm. which party would fight each uh, seat in the 1983 election. Uh, it became quite a lot worse under Jenkins' replacement, David Owen, who took over in 1983, because Owen, unlike Jenkins, was not really, he never tried to be leader of the alliance in the way that Jenkins and Steele mm. did. They wanted the the two the leaders, I think they saw an alliance as a genuine partnership of equals. They wanted to demonstrate harmony. They wanted to work together. I think both of them saw eventually the party's um, destiny, the two parties' destiny was to merge. Owen wasn't like that at all. He wanted to see an independent SDP that was quite different from the Liberals. And he always gave a higher priority to leading his own party mm. over leading the alliance. So he would fight very, very hard for SDP positions and effectively took the SDP further to the right and more more and more Thatcherite in many of its positions. Whereas, um, uh, and I, you know, I can remember this personally, because this is when I was getting involved in the party um, and uh, seeing myself on, kind of on, on the left of the party, as I always have done and still do today. Um, I saw Steele, and I think many of us activists saw this, Steele always compromised. You know, he, it was always the liberal position that left out because he gave a higher priority to leading the alliance than he did to leading the liberal party. Rousseau didn't care about that, so he stuck to his guns and always... Um, uh, always got the STP view. I, that's a bit of a caricature, but the the tensions came to a head particularly over the defence debate, uh, the row about nuclear weapons in 1986, which led to Steele's defeat at the 86 Assembly, and that was just a. The whole episode there was just, it should never have happened. It was a catalogue of horrible errors on the part of both Steele and Owen and others. But it damaged the party. The party lost, the alliance lost about a quarter of its vote in the opinion polls. You know, and before that, again, it may be difficult to remember this. Now we're at kind of six to eight percent in the opinion polls. But for most of 1985 and 86, the party was, the alliance was hovering around about 30 percent in the opinion polls. We were winning by-elections. We were doing really well in local government elections. We're beginning to kind of firm up the vote. Um, and that dropped to just above 20 percent after the row at the end of 86. Um, then kind of drifted up a little bit. And then the alliance campaign in 1987 was just terrible with, with two leadership uh, campaigns that didn't coordinate with each other. Owen clearly would have preferred, you know, it, it looked possible like there might have been a hung parliament after 87. Owen was clearly dropping hints that he wouldn't have nothing to do with the Labour Party. He preferred to do a deal with Thatcher. Whereas for most liberals, that was just a horrifying thought. Um, and Steele was saying, you know, never any deal with Thatcher. We'd prefer to do something with uh, with Labour under Neil Kinnock. So it's not really surprising that that campaign managed to drive the alliance vote downwards in the way that um, the 87, camp the 79 campaign, which, which Steele had led, uh, didn't do. So, um, yeah, the internal tensions within the alliance um, kind of brought it to an end uh, finally. But I think, you know, Jenkins, uh, Owen was a far more difficult person to deal with than Jenkins, but I think Steele's neglect of policy details that mattered to his party and to his activists and his failures at party management, I think in the end kind of helped to undermine that. And I think if he'd been a bit better at both of those things, and I think, you know, he recognizes this in his memoirs and interviews and so on, he'd said no one would ever give him full marks for, for party management and policy details. But, you know, I think he could have found lieutenants who could have done it better for him. Uh, I think we would have had uh, a, a happier uh, sort of ride throughout the mid 80s and possibly ended up doing rather better in 87, maybe even holding a balance of power. But of course, the, we still face the problem of the alliance vote being spread far too evenly across the country. 
Yeah, and and I think the other thing that is, that happened during that time, where there's again a parallel with Joe Grimmond, is actually the the third party local government base grew hugely in its strength, predominantly liberal, although not there were also uh, uh, SDP councillors as well. But 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 between them, that alliance local government base grew hugely, and again, as with Grimmond, it seems to have been a I think a really important factor for the party and indeed for local politics across the country, but one which wasn't really driven by the leader, that Steele, like Grimmond, wasn't, didn't really see the local government base as being something that the leader should worry about, put effort into, that would be part of his legacy or, or anything like that, did he? Yes, I think that's quite correct. I think Steele was always focused on Parliament and on the national scene. Obviously, he had no problem with the fact that, that, that the two parties were doing well in local government. And that was really important. I think it, that local government strength was one of the things that kept the Liberal Democrats on the road um, after the kind of disaster of merger. Mm. Um, and it was kind of enduring strength that uh, the Greens, for example, didn't show uh, when they briefly overtook us mm. in 89. Um, but yes, it was something that was happening uh, rather separately from from Steele and the parliamentary leadership. Um, the Association of Liberal Councillors then, ALC, was, was, I think, far more influential in the party than ALDC is now. I mean, not to underplay the importance of ALDC, they're really important, but in addition to providing the kind of organisational support and, and background backup for councillors and council groups that that, that the LDC still does. The ALC, as it was then, was also seen as a source of new ideas and of a fairly radical critique of the party leadership throughout the alliance. Um, and that kind of role in, in policy and in debates over party strategy isn't one that the ALDC really played um, in the Liberal Democrats. Yeah, although I think in fairness to the current ALDC sort of leadership, that in part reflects the success of their predecessors are particularly in, in, in ALC in that the importance of the local government base is much, I mean, we're not quite there yet really in properly appreciating it all the time in the party, but it, it's, it's massively moved on from, from the world of, of the seventies and the eighties. Yeah, and you can see that, true. Yes. you can see that in the recent you know, party leadership elections, how much you know, leadership candidates talk about the importance of winning local elections in a way that, I, you know, I don't think really featured in the, well, the, the Joe Grimmond leadership contest was was one that members didn't get a say in, but the, the Steel one, the Steel Pardo contesting, and I don't think local government featured in it in a way that is just now the norm. Yes, um, I think that's quite right. I think Paddy was the first uh, leader who really properly appreciated the uh, importance of local government. Um, so after the second general election failure or relative failure for the alliance, as you say, the vote share then is something we can only look on with envy a little bit at the moment. But after that second failure, uh, one of the, the lesson that most people in the SDP and the Liberals drew was that just the fraction and overhead and difficulties of being two parties in an electoral pact didn't work. And it was much better to therefore be one merged party. The merged party was created. Um, it got off to a really bad start. Um, but one of the key decisions that David Steele made was to not want to be leader of the merged party. So he didn't put his hat in the ring. Um, and I think that was quite genuinely him deciding he didn't want to do it. It wasn't that he had read the runes and that people didn't want him. I think probably he could have got elected as leader if he had wanted it. Um, but what's your take on why he decided not to run? Well, I think... I think it's it's an interesting question whether he would have been elected, actually. Um, there was a lot of speculation at the time about whether he was going to. Mm -hmm. But I think the 
Um, I think we have to remember the disaster of the, the merger negotiations. And again, a lot of party members went around, um, current party members went around during that period. So it's worth remembering that, although, I mean, on the Liberal side, pretty much everybody was happy to enter merger negotiations. I remember the debate at the 1987 Liberal Assembly, um, and it was an overwhelming majority to open negotiations and elect a negotiating team. On the SDP side, of course, um, the party was splitting. Um, Owen opposed merger, and he resigned as leader when the referendum, the ballot within the SDP, went the wrong way, and I was replaced by Robert McLennan, who had himself voted against the idea of merger, but then accepted the uh, conclusion, the decision of the membership, and, and uh, briefly served as the last uh, SDP leader. Um, so obviously the SDP was falling apart. I mean, that was, you know, for those of us on, on the left in the Liberal Party, that wasn't necessarily a bad thing. We, we despised Owen and the Owenites. Uh, we were quite happy to see them go. That Obviously, it was doing damage to the, the parties in the, in the country. Um, but the whole of the emerging negotiations, I think, were then influenced by the feeling on the SDP side and on some of the Liberal negotiators that we wanted to appeal to Owen, that we wanted to maybe not bring Owen himself back into the merge party, but at least attract most of the Owenites. So again, you saw the same kind of thing, at least you know, this is from our perspective as, as liberal activists. It looked like the liberal team was always um, giving up, was always compromising with the SDP view. And we ended up with a party structure that looked pretty, a proposed party structure that looked a bit centralized um, compared to the liberal party that gave more power to the leadership um, and less to the activists and included things like the commitment to the support of Britain's membership of NATO in the preamble to the party constitution. Now, the preamble expresses the party's eternal values. You know, so the membership of of a defence organisation could not be described as a eternal value, but it's important to the SDP side because of the background that most of them had, or many of them had left the Labour Party because of the Labour's Labour's position on unilateralism. Again, the whole issue around nuclear weapons and defence was much more significant uh, in politics in the eighties than it subsequently became after the fall I, of the. Berlin I guess War. it would be a bit like now arguing over whether or not the European Union should be mentioned in the preamble in the sense that, as you say, technically, the sort of purest answer is no, because these are eternal values. The European Union is a particular organisation. But you can imagine the practical outrage there would be from many members at the thought that, you know, what, we're not committed enough to the European Union to mention it in the preamble? And I, I guess NATO was slightly similar in that respect, wasn't it? Yeah, that's, that's an interesting point, actually, because I was thinking, well, of course the European Union should be mentioned in the preamble. In fact, it is, though, actually, it's the European community, because that's what it was when the preamble was written. So maybe the federal board might like to think about updating that. Um, but I think the idea of the ideal of European unity and working together with Europe is more in line with the party's basic values and principles than membership of a defense organization. Uh, and you have to remember the the arguments throughout the 80s uh, with a very hawkish uh, um, US president in post, the sighting of cruise missiles, US cruise, cruise yeah. missiles in British soil, which the Liberal Party voted against. It was, I said, much more of a kind of flashpoint than it. Than it. I mean, now I think it wouldn't be a big deal, to be honest. Um, but uh, though, in fact, we then subsequently removed NATO from the preamble um, in uh, in the in the merging yeah. party, but there was a lot of unhappiness on the liberal side. The thing that really 
did steal damage, though, I think more than anything else. I mean, I think despite all that, we would have still gone on. The party voted for merger overwhelmingly, yeah. and it would have done anyway. The thing that really did the damage was that as well as the structure of the party, the constitution and the preamble, which was what the negotiating team focused on, was that the policy statement, the founding policy mm. statement of the party, which was left to the leaders to negotiate, and still, true to form, not being very interested in policy detail, basically left it to, I think, a couple of people in McLennan's office mm -hmm. to draft and then released the, the final draft of the document to the parliamentary party kind of on the eve of its publication uh, in the press. And they hadn't seen it before. No one had seen it before. The policy committee hadn't seen it. The MPs hadn't seen it. Um, I have a copy of it somewhere in my files. It is the most appalling document. I mean, it is so cack-handed. Um, it, it sort of triggered lots of red flags that anybody read it should have realized at the time you know it committed the 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 new party to replacing the polaris missile system the british independent term with trident which had been the main flashpoint over the defense debate in 86 87 it uh, um, advocated putting VAT on children's clothes. It wanted to scrap um, child benefit and mortgage tax relief, which then existed. I mean, you know, actually, you can provide intellectual backgrounds, uh, sort of arguments for all these things, but in terms of the political sensitivities at the time, it was just stupid. And also, it was really badly written. Yeah. People don't comment on that, but it was just so crushingly badly written and um it always strikes me as a good example of be careful what you wish for if you say that the, what the party needs to do is just be radical <laughs> it was i mean it was a very radical set of policies and, and actually i think as you say there is a degree of intellectual coherence to them albeit it wasn't written very well but that it was an intellectual coherence that was many steps removed from where the party's views at the time or indeed subsequently have have been yes. but i think it is it I, to me at least that document is a really good example of how talking about oh we just need to be radical with policies is it, it is just an in itself an utterly inadequate and not you know statement because it because because it, it, it's easy to be radical the difficulty bit is to be radical and to be right and to be popular and actually a political party needs its policies to be all three of those. If you simply want to be radical, you could still dust off many of those, many of the things in that policy document haven't been implemented in the intervening year. So you could simply, you know, that would be radical, but I'm not sure anyone is going to call for that to be our next manifesto. Yeah, when people say they want the party's policies to be more radical, they generally mean either they want the party's policy to be more what they think is right, or they think it just wants to be, they want the party's policy to be more exciting in some kind of undefined and probably mm. completely impractical way. But anyway, the, the, the point is that it was a completely the wrong document for the purpose it was designed for and still should have realized that and just the release of it was so badly handled so it was released to the press and then the press conference to launch it was cancelled um, and I think at Paddy's uh, insistence there was a joint press conference organized instead um, where there's a picture of it in in David Torrance's biography of Steele where you have the two leaders McLennan and Steele sitting down um, and various Liberal MPs and SDP MPs lined up behind them all of them are looking so unhappy and kind of uh, I think Paddy later described it as looking like prisoners about to be tortured, and they did look like that. And it was just, you know, they were explaining why they had released this document, which of course was then splashed across the press, um, but actually weren't going to release it at all. Um, it, it, yeah, you could hardly imagine a worse kind of episode, really. Um, so that 
um, episode damaged Steele's views in the minds of the activists a lot. And I think it, it's not clear that he would have won against Paddy. I think he probably would have stood against him if he had stood for leadership of the Merge mm. Party. He probably would have done, but it, it, not by very much. And I think then he would have damaged. But I think, you know, he'd been leader by then for 12 years. The merger negotiations were themselves quite exhausting. Um, I think he probably, he played, I think he played around with the idea of a lot. And a lot of people, uh, urged him to stand but i think probably right he was never really very serious about wanting to stand himself yeah that's a good point i think had paddy still decided to stand which i think he probably would have done yeah i think so. I think paddy would have had the great opportunity to say look we need we need to do something different after the you know after the the essentially the indifferent ways failures of the elections under Steele's leadership but the it's time for a change message would have been quite powerful yeah, um, and also the fact that yes, Paddy definitely. had um, probably a more compelling message for the former Liberal Party activists uh, over, you know, his 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 stance on some of the key controversies over the previous year. So yeah, Paddy. Interesting, had- actually. I mean, Paddy in the end appealed both to Liberal Party activists because of his fairly radical stance on things like defence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he he'd spoken in the debate on cruise missiles uh, in nineteen eighty one. Um, when the party defeated Steele on uh, the leadership on that position. Um, and he also appealed to the SDP because, well, at the time then, his challenger was Alan Beath, who looked more like a more traditional liberal, um, which wasn't particularly attractive to their former SDP members. Possibly they might have been more likely to vote for Steele, I think. But, yeah, we never know. In the end, he didn't fight. He didn't stand anyway. So he acted as joint interim leader of the new party, the merged party, the Social Liberal Democrats, along with Bob McLennan, until the leadership election in summer 1988. At which point Paddy became, uh, was elected. And we may maybe should look at his legacy in a future episode. Um, but let's just thinking about David Steele's overall legacy. And just backtracking to uh, a point I half made earlier, you know, one of the things he did, he was very much a part of extra parliamentary campaigning before he became party leader. So things like the campaigning over apartheid and the pressures to reform the abortion laws and so on. Steele was very much part of a wider sort of campaigning community in that sense and obviously his private members bill was absolutely central to the introduction of more liberal and sensible laws on abortion in this country so i do wonder whether in many ways Steele's legacy as leader uh sorry his legacy as a politician comes more from his time before becoming a leader you know if you think about that private members bill on abortion something like that would have probably happened eventually but eventually might have been a decade or two later. You know, it feels like there was a real difference that he made as a as a backbench campaigning MP. Well, he was Liberal Party frontbencher, but, you know, as a campaigning MP, as a, as a non-ministerial, non-party leader campaigning MP, than maybe he made as leader? Or am I just reading too much into that extra parliamentary campaigning? Yeah, I don't agree with that. Actually, I think there are, there are, there are three important things about Steele's mm-hmm. career outside his leadership that we ought to just briefly mention. One was absolutely his um, decision to take up abortion law reform as part of his private members bill in the 60s. I mean, it helped that you had a liberalizing Labour government in power and Roy Jenkins, I think, was Home Secretary at the time who gave him a lot of support. But yeah, that was a difficult, you know, it wasn't the obvious choice um, to make and it got him a lot of flack at the time, but it was absolutely a very liberal thing to do. Uh, That was important. Um, After he became leader, I think we can give him credit for at least two things. 
One is that he consistently supported Paddy in the early years of the Liberal Democrats. And I saw this at first hand. Mm. I was party policy director at the time, appointed in, well, I started in September 88. And Paddy had a really tough time, really pretty much up until the 92 election. Um, certainly in the first two years, there were problems about the party's name, as you might remember, the dispute mm. about whether it's going to be social Liberal Democrats or Democrats or Liberal Democrats. And I think, you know, Paddy made a few mistakes, as, as leaders always do. And he came in for a lot of flack from the group of MPs around Alan Beath, uh, not so much Beath himself, but people like Alex Carlyle were really quite unpleasant at times and very antagonistic. And Steele, you know, I think probably Steele, I mean, Steele supported Beath or voted for Beath in the leadership election uh, and probably agreed with a lot of the criticisms, but he was always very overtly loyal to uh, Paddy, and I gained a lot of respect for him at the time. You know, having been, I said, a, a liberal activist during the alliance, not very happy with the direction of the alliance, didn't like David Owen, thought Steele gave him to him too much. My view of Steele began to change quite a lot um, when I saw how he performed, uh, behaved towards Paddy, uh, and then it changed another lot when I, I spent three weeks in the in his constituency in '97. Uh, one of the happiest general election campaigns I've ever had. He asked me to come up and help Michael Moore take the seat and keep the seat from him, and it was great. And Steele, actually, one thing about him is that he's not always very easy with. Um, people he's he's naturally a bit shy i think but he really relaxes like most of us do i think he relaxes when he's at home amongst familiar surroundings and i got to like him a good deal um so but i think the other important thing about his post leadership uh record was serving as presiding officer of the scottish parliament for its first yeah. term and helping to establish a lot of the routines and the disciplines of the scottish parliament in the kind of fairly uncertain period when you know, nobody had done this before so i think we should remember all those things yes. but i do i, I guess actually, i should just mention a fourth which is the less positive one but definitely a lesson for the party and all parties subsequently is in terms of some of the scandals and allegations there were about, for example, Cyril Smith during David Steele's time as leader, just you need to take allegations seriously and 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 deal with them properly. There's a, an important lesson for us all. Yes, that. I think that's absolutely fair enough. But I do think actually that even taking all those things into account, his his record as leader is a really impressive one, and I think we ought not to lose sight of it. Mm. And I just want to quote from um, uh, an assessment from two journalists. Mm. Um, Alistair Mickey and Simon Hockett, who actually wrote a book about the Lib Dem Pact. But I think their assessment of what Steele did during the pact is a reasonable summary of his career as leader. And what they wrote was, in 1976, just before Steele took over, the Liberal Party was going nowhere at all. It lacked ambition, it lacked a lot of drive, and it lacked a leader who had any concept of what might be done with the votes and the support that the party had accumulated through the early 1970s. What Steele offered was a direction, a purpose, and an ambition. Within months of becoming leader, he had placed the party absolutely at the centre of British political life and had made it too important to be ignored by anybody. And I think that remained true throughout the whole of the rest of Steele's leadership. He transformed the party uh, from a position where it really wasn't taken very seriously as part of British politics, maybe occasionally with by-election wins or the 74 election, but it was really a sort of bit player to something that was central, still a third party, but a really important player in the British political scene. And that was true throughout the whole period of his leadership. And I think we should remember that. So you've mentioned um, a couple of books along the way. So just as a final wrap up, what would you recommend for anyone who's been listening to this and either just can't work out the chronology of what happened when <laughs> or wants to find out a bit more about David Steele? 
So I'll recommend three books, um, and some of them will be familiar to previous listeners to this podcast. The History Group's book, Peace, Reform and Liberation, is the basic history of the party um, right from the 17th century through to 2011 when we published it. Uh, and obviously, the chapter on the 70s and 80s follows Steele's leadership and the whole sort of uh, context about what was happening. Uh, so that's a good sort of basic background. For more detail, look at the History Group's book, British Liberal Leaders, which has a chapter on every leader mm. since the 1820s. Uh, obviously, it's a leader chapter on steel written by David Torrance, who's a Scottish journalist and did a pretty decent job, I think, of that. But also, in addition to that, we had an interview. We interviewed three leaders, um, Paddy Ashdown, Nick Clegg and David Steele himself for the book. And you can see the transcript of the interview in the book. And that's quite interesting about how he saw leadership, how he saw his strengths and weaknesses. Right. Uh, and then... Um, Torrance himself has written the only biography of Steele, actually, um, called David Steele, Rising Hope, Elder Statesman. And I think it's a thoroughly decent job if you want more detail on Steele's career and analysis of his leadership. Um, that's a good one to go to. Yeah, I'll also include uh, the book on the Liblar Pact as well, because I, th- I mean, partly just it's, as you say, with things like the play, the house, that period of politics was just so yeah. fascinatingly dramatic because it did feel like there were big questions about almost the survival of democracy and of the country and that they were often hanging on wafer thin margins in late night votes in parliament. You know, there was a, I think we got a little bit of a taste of that with the Brexit, some of the Brexit stuff last year uh, in terms of that atmosphere being similar, but it's like 2019, I think felt a really long time a really long year for people involved in politics. Mm-hmm. But it was like 2019 extended over several years was what the late 70s were like. Yeah, I think that's right. And against the background of of possible economic collapse, I mean, it was never quite as bad as that, but it looked pretty bad with inflation and unemployment both yeah. going up in the way that they hadn't before. It, it was right. like I mean, if, still- if 2019 had happened with coronavirus and lasted three <laughs> times as long, that's sort of what the late 70s were like. Yes, I think that's fair enough. It was a very exciting time, though. I mean, it's when I when I got interested in politics. Um, I was at school and then at university, and yeah, I mean, everything was exciting and happening. To be fair, we ought to mention that Steele himself wrote a book on the pact uh, called The House Divided, mm-hmm. and also his memoirs against Goliath are worth reading as well. But I think um, you know the first three that I mentioned are probably the ones to start with. Excellent. Lots of reading to keep people busy then. So thank you very much for that, Duncan. Thank you very much, everyone, for listening. You can find Duncan on Twitter at Duncan Brack, myself at Mark Pack, and this podcast at Bar Chart Podcast. Please do give us feedback. This is the second now of our shows uh, talking about former party leaders. It may be the second and last or the second of many, depending on your feedback. So do please tweet away to let us know what you thought of this and of course check out the liberal history group itself at liberalhistory.org.uk i'll include that as well as follow-up links to the various books we've mentioned and some other stuff in the show notes and as well as a link to the previous episode about joe grimmond so thanks very much for listening and until next time Mm -hmm.